Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to the curators of the Floating Museum, heard from a female rapper from Mexico, and learned about Native American literature. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much, much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 1st, 2017. Bad at Sports spoke to the collective behind the Floating Museum, an exhibit currently wending its way down the Chicago River. The group spoke about their summer program, their stops in Bridgeport, and their final installation at Navy Pier. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, and uh, on a beautiful day like today, wouldn't it be so amazing to head out to someplace like the river, perhaps? Maybe catch a little contemporary art in the fresh breeze. Uh, and we are joined by the Floating Museum, which is providing just that for us. Uh, so Fahim, Jeremiah, Avery, Andrew, uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves uh, and let us know what you guys are doing with this Floating Museum. As if you didn't already just do that. But, you know, <laughs> one more. <laughs> they don't know us by voice. They know us by name right now. It's Bingo. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. And be it that I am the one talking at this moment, I will say I am Avery. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the one with the smooth voice is uh, Barry White. No, I'm joking. This is Fahima G. Um, yes. My name is Jeremiah Hulsipa Spofford. And I'm Andrew Shackman. All right. And so you guys got this project <coughs> called the uh, Floating Museum, uh, which one might assume involves museums, water, possibly some art. Where is this? What's going on? What's the project? Um, I guess I, I'll jump in first. We all, you know, we all have. Um, go ahead and turn that mic towards oh, your sorry. face whenever there you're talking. There it is. There you go. Laser beam it. Um, we all, you know, this is actually a rare moment. It's like uh, all of us in the room at the same time. Voltron is formed. Exactly. We've come together <laughs> to form the awesome floating museum robot. But um, depending on who you're talking to, we all have kind of different wheelhouses and we talk about the project um, differently. Uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But um, uh, basically, we're a collective that thinks a little bit about uh, museum kind of practices or like a loving critique of museum practices, whether that's through uh, uh, art production, community engagement, uh, uh, architecture, design, um, and ways of thinking about kind of navigating that gray space between our kind of cultural center, which is downtown in Chicago, and a lot of our neighborhoods around the city. And we do that through collaboration. We do that through community building. We do that through listening and then kind of responsive, site responsive design and exhibitions and sculpture and performance. So by gray space, you don't mean the river. <laughs> floating, yes, we are on the river. Well, we, yeah. We're floating literally, but usually it's a metaphor. Floating means about kind of movement. Yeah, I okay. So floating has always been a part, because that's my question is, how did floating come into play? Because I love a good float. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. All kinds. Now. A swimming float, ice cream float. Come on. Right down the Chicago River float. Banana float. Banana, banana float. float. Banana. Root beer float. We're working really hard. Sensor deprivation make tank. The uh, first Chicago sinking museum. Also. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, floating came about. Uh, Fahim and I went to grad school together. And we. Would I was you like making, to tell us where? Oh, wait. That UIC. Oh, what's up? University of Illinois, Woo. Chicago. Uh, and we, I was making some floating sculpture. Fahim was uh, doing a, a work uh, at the Southside Community Art Center. He was executive director. And we took a tour of the DuSable Museum and sort of said, what would it be to float a museum through the city? 
So it's like a poetic move. Um, so the project started there and has changed a lot since then. Um, but we like to think that sometimes we're on the river, but it can be also a land-based float air maybe in the future. Ooh, yeah. I like that. Cause I've seen you guys floating across the city in a more metaphorical way, bouncing around, but this is the first, this is the first actual physical. Yeah. Float. Let's talk about what's actually manifested. Andrew, let's hear from well, you. Cause I know what yeah. Avery does. I know what Jeremiah does. I know what Fahim does, but it's your turn now. Well, I guess I'm the logistics design and coordinator. Oh, sorry, too far away from the mic. Yeah. Um, one thing about floating, I would just quickly say is I, I also, uh, you know, my I, I've we collaborate a lot in conceptual aspects of the art um, together. So uh, one thing about floating too, I think there's a, you know, if you think about fluxus or uh, other artworks that intervene in the normal, I don't know, daily patterns and it's a kind of surprise or an encounter. I think that's another aspect of floating that is not necessarily just literal, but I think the thing that's manifest right now is a surprise because uh, <laughs> there's a giant 26 foot by 100 foot barge with a cabinet of curiosities on it. Uh, uh, it's a giant sort of collective show that uh, arrives like a, almost like a pirate ship and surprises um, anyone who's normally, uh, I don't know, taking, having lunch at the Riverwalk at the moment, it's at the Riverwalk. It was at Bubbly Creek before that, and it'll be going to Navy Pier uh, on Monday. Um, but it, it breaks up the normal pattern of expectation. Because when you go to a museum, you're prepared to go there, you know where that site is, that this sort of arrives and comes to you. Um, so it's a very different, it comes to you. It comes, so it's at the Riverwalk right now. So for example, my wife works across the street from the River Rock. So if she wanted to go there on her lunch, could she just go down and do that? Is this sort of just open uh, to the public or is it sort of scheduled events? It's open to the public. It's open to the public. Yeah. It installed right yes. now. Yes. Um, and we do have a couple of scheduled events. Well, we have programming that happens um, throughout the week. But, yeah, anyone could just. So if people wanted to get information on this programming, uh, where would they be able to find it? Can I tell you? Please. Because I happen to have it up right now. <laughs> you can go to www.chicagoriverwalk.us slash floating museum. Mm. And there is a schedule of all the events there, including tours, including a lot about Avery. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. So what are these events? What, what, I mean, what what's happening soon? Um... Well, uh, there's the song circle that happens. <laughs> um, that that happens. That will be happening. That, that will be happening. That's, that's today. I lead, right? yeah, today, I, <laughs> I lead the song circle, um, and basically we've had this song circle since the first week of August, and we've been in various communities. We were at Sky Arts the first week, and we were at Bubbly Creek or Eleanor Park. Um, the second week, and we've kind of just generated this quiet throughout the city in the hopes that um, the culminating event, which is Artifact, that these members of this choir that we've kind of collected over these past weeks will all come, you know, as a band in white and, and be and, and, and perform. And we're doing that. There's a talk, a breaking bread talk mm -hmm. on, on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, Sunday is the culminating event. And that's no longer the River Rock. That's down at 
No, I, I, the, the culminating event will be this Sunday. This Sunday. kind of wraps up the river phase. Gotcha. Yes. And then okay. uh, Monday we pack up and keep moving on down the river okay. to the Navy Pier where we'll kind of come off the barge. The barge will go away. And these, this cabinet of curiosities that uh, Andrew kind of talked about, which is basically made up of shipping crates from an art packing company or art shipping company, will become something else, okay. uh, a courtyard in the name of uh, Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable. Ponderers spoke to the members of A.J. Davila's solo project about their music, the band's recent performance at Villa Belusa, and meeting the world domino champion. The Ponderers, with Sandra Trevino and Stephanie Manriquez, airs the second and fourth Monday of the month at 6 p.m. And in studio, live in studio here in Chicago, A.J. Davila. Welcome, gentlemen. <laughs> How y'all doing? Good, good. Hungover. How did you spend the day Sunday here in Chicago? Because I know you you performed Saturday? Yeah, yeah. We, we went shopping and, and we went to dinner last night. We went to Chinatown yesterday too. We had too. A, friend, a friend in town from New York. Okay. So we and then her. we went to have like a. A few, few, a few, a few drinks with, with Benito. Few, yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Benny always, whenever he he and my uh, uh, boyfriend go out, they have this bromance going on. So I'm like, you know, you better <laughs> stop it. Because he's like, hey, mi amor, ven para acá. <laughs> he tells my boyfriend, I'm like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> and then he, he gets home till the next day. And I'm like, you were with Benny, weren't you? Yeah, he was with Benny. <laughs> Benny's, a, Benny's a cool dude. And I like that he keeps bringing in, you know, bands and artists that... Uh, other people probably wouldn't, you know, bring, especially in the underground punk scene. So I think he's doing a, a great job with no, that. No, he's amazing. He's awesome. Much I'm love for Benny. Benny, we love you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, how, how was it? How was the performance on Saturday for you here in Chicago? It was really fun. It's like we have, like, the, we came from, we did uh, one month tour in, in Mexico City. Uh-huh. So we were kind of tired, but, you know, like, uh, you get some mezcals and, and beers and you wake up, you know? So <laughs> and you make it through the next day. Yeah, you make it to the next race. So it was really cool. Like was, we almost uh, lost uh, our plane ticket from Mexico to Chicago. Almost yeah, we couldn't make miracle, it. Miracle, miracle that we're here. <laughs> Do I want to know why? No. Uh. <laughs> right away, I know. Were you guys uh, uh, performing any new material at the festival? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We play a, a lot of the new songs from from my new album El Futuro. It came it came out in May five, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. We play a lot of the of the new songs from the new album. So it was really it, it was really fun, you know. So it was fun to sing along to uh, the music that you're doing now. Uh, I think that you have uh, creatively started to develop. I don't know. I, w- I don't want to say a new sound, but it's definitely like. Post-punk '80s uh, pop with yeah. uh, you know the the courses like the, the, the courses Puerto Rican cure. The Puerto Rican yeah. cure. <laughs> well, there's like I, I want to say that uh, it's uh, music for people that are in love, but there's a, there's still that you know, I broke my pen. There's still that fury there, you know, like angry love songs. 
Angry love songs, yeah, I think like yeah, in this, you know, on this album too, like we, <coughs> we been in. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> in, in this beautiful nation. <laughs> so yeah, but it's yeah, it's so good. It's all it's all about love, you know. Mm -hmm. Are you intentionally trying to change? Uh, your sound in each new recording? Yeah, of course. I think like, you know, it's like when you make one album, you want to do something different, you know? It would be boring to mm -hmm. to do like every album, like, you know, like the same. And, and this time, this I think like there was like a like a change of of sound on this album because uh, it's the first time that I worked for, with a producer, like since Davila 66 and my first two albums, like, uh, Like a, like a solo, I I I mix I mix all the albums. I produce the albums. So like this is the first time that I'm that I'm working with a with a producer that was uh, Sergio Costa from Sue. Mm -hmm. So he produced the album and and it was a mix uh, uh, the Juan Salvador. He he mixed the album and and digo, he was the engineer of the album and we, and we have uh, Jack uh, Jack Lahaine, like from France like uh, he mixed the album. He have worked like with. Uh, That punk, yeah, work with the uh, Phoenix, uh, Leon Larregui, uh, now with Soe. So it's it's been it's it's been great, you know. It's like from from recording in your <laughs> in your in your bedroom, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to how, having this album. How did it feel to uh, let let that go and let someone else control it? I think I think like, I I I wanted to, I wanted to try because like you know it's been 14 years. Doing it that way, so mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like, in, you know, rice and beans every day, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you, you get bored, you know. I just, I just wanted to to try something new, mm -hmm. you know. And, and and Sergio is amazing. Like he he keep my essence of the music, but like he he gave it like a new, you know, a new point of view. Okay, este, has tratado diferentes. Uh, discos, uh, sellos discográficos para cada álbum desde que es, estás haciendo tu música tú fuera de 666. Este, ¿por qué eso? Um, I think like, o sea, como que, ¿qué te puedo decirle? O sea, siempre me gusta firmar por un álbum. Okay. Y si nos enamoramos más, pues, <laughs> <laughs> we make another album. Just like, I, 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 I just want to be free, you know? And it feels good, like, You know, it's like we, we live in modern times now. You know, it's not it's not like in the past that you should make a 15-year-old contract, you know. Mm -hmm. So now it's like album, one album at a time, you know, so. I think artists are really enjoying that liberty that they're getting by doing that, like not being uh, necessarily a, a slave to one entity yeah. and um, just being able to release it independently still and have someone kind of produce it for you, do the marketing for you, do the, the stuff that you want to do, but you are not like, aquí tengo que estar 10 años más, you know? No, 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 no. I think, I think you know, it's like when, when when you work with different people, you just bring different things, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like having a lot of girlfriends, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't know anything about that, right? No. <laughs> I'm a married guy. ¿Qué es el amor, AJ? Ah, el amor es todo. El amor es todo. Sin el amor no hay nada. No obligado, sí. Love is everything. Love is everything. Why don't we listen to a song? <laughs> <laughs> 
on that note, what are we going to listen to? Something awesome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we give a quick shout out to sure. uh, a couple of taxi drivers who really helped us? Yeah. Um, we've had, uh, man, Chicago has got to have the best taxi drivers in the world. Like we, uh, probably, yeah. Yesterday we met a guy. I'm yes- like, what? Yesterday? It was yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday we met a guy, uh, Muhammad, who he was from Morocco, and I happened to be wearing a Morocco shirt. Mm-hmm. So as soon as he saw that, oh my God, my brother! And then he had a Puerto Rican flag in yeah. his taxi <laughs> hanging from his mirror. Oh wow! I love Puerto Rico. International. He was great. And then today we met the three-time world domino champion Travis Newsom, and he was oh, yeah. Travis, yeah. my brother. Travis was super cool. I think he's listening now. I hope you're listening, Travis. Drive safe. Much we love, love you, man. Travis. We love you, man. Yeah. spoke to Native American author Erica T. Worth about her work, so-called pretendians, and how Native American culture sits in plain sight in Chicago. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Without further ado, I want to kick this show off. We have a special guest, and today we are going to be speaking with the author of a number of books, including the one that is in my hot little hand called Buckskin Cocaine. We are joined now by Erica T. Worth. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nonfiction is interesting because I know it's some folks' like first love and they like get MFAs in it, but it's just something I've been solicited for, and I had a piece in the Writer's Chronicle and then the piece in publishers weekly and so after those things like people really started to solicit me and I started writing about that the whole pretendian phenomenon is very odd because being Native American means you're native in a country where obviously like there's been genocide and so what we are is like within a human being extremely gray and strange but there are you you know 60% of Americans will claim to be part Cherokee you know and there are people who really take that incredibly seriously. And the problem is what people know about Native Americans is so bizarre and so strange. Like, you know, Chicago has a very large Native population. It has an Indian center. Yes, but, yeah. right, people just, yeah. you know, almost don't see us. We They either think, you know, maybe perhaps we're Mexican, which those people are Native, or they think perhaps we're Italian and we get sort of ignored. So that's, you know, that's what I was talking about is the problem is like within all that, the problem is there's a lot of gray territory, people who are mixed, people who are from reservations, people who are white passing. You know, I mean, there's a whole plethora of of issues that I like to address, you know, in my nonfiction, especially in that one. But as far as native science fiction goes, you know, I am a big fan of and write primarily literary realism. I just like it. Um, I think it it forces you to, if you take all the cops and spaceships and detectives away, you're kind of forced with the everyday reality. And you have to pay attention to language and to characterization and, you know, theoretically to structure if you're going to show something beautiful. And, but that said, you know, I was a kid who read fantasy and then I read horror and then I read sci-fi before I, I read any of that. And I started to see what was was popping up, which was Daniel Wilson's Robe Apocalypse. He's a Cherokee citizen, actually, um, and of his nation. And he just wrote these phenomenal books that nobody knows, nobody in the native literary world talks about because they're, you know, they have robots. 
And really people, I think, in the big press world, which he publishes with, they don't even know he's native. And yet he has these great native characters. Blake Hausman is just a genius. I didn't know he was native. I have those that See? Robo collection at the library, and I had no idea that he was native. And I didn't, until I was researching for this show, I didn't know Stephen, Stephen Graham Jones was either. He's of the Blackfeet tribe. Yeah. Oh, yes. And yeah. We've, we've, we've talked about his book on the show. Yeah, before. we've covered some of his mm-hmm. books on the show. Mm-hmm. And I, I think yeah. we did talk about it, and I forgot. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, it's okay. No, Daniel Wilson, Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen loves horror He's just one of those guys who's just so, so great. I, I know, I mean, the Indian world is so small, I know them all. And Stephen actually blurred buckskin cocaine, and I, you know, was really flattered that he did that. Blake Hausman um, is published with a small press that's now defunct. He was with um, Bison Press, right? No, he was with um, the Native Story Storyer series, I think. And that was out of University of Nebraska. And Gerald, <clears throat> Gerald Visner and Diane Glantz used to run it. The reason I think he was with a small press, though, is because it's just so clearly, it's to me, it's a phenomenal read. Like, you can't help but just go right through it. Um, but it's also just clearly brainy. It's all about, like, what would happen in the very near future if the Cherokee Nation decided to have a digital recreation of the Trail of Tears and what would happen if that went haywire. And it's just, it's such a compelling read. And it really just, the characters are so interesting and strange. And the whole thing is just this lovely, weird concept. We well, mentioned that t- book is called Riding the Trail of Tears. That's oh, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blake yes. Hausman, so. yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because one of the things I really like about this show is the, the links we can sometimes make to, to literature I didn't know about. In your <coughs> earlier novel, Crazy Horse's Girlfriend, you mentioned in the acknowledgments that you owed a debt to Eden Robinson and Susan Power, two authors I had never heard of before. Can you talk a little bit about their work and, and how it influenced you? They're like the unofficial queens of Canadian and American literature, Native American literature. Obviously, people know Alexi. People know Louise Erdrich. They're really prolific, and they're great, and I can see why people like them. I do, too. But Eden Robinson, she wrote Monkey Beach, um, and it was just this huge phenomenon in the 90s. And she's funny, and she's weird, and she's dark. She Sometimes her book, uh, Blood Sports, is a little Stephen Graham Jonesh. And I'm really close to her. Her book was sort of a YA, Monkey Beach, but it was like, you know, before YA had to be categorized in this little tiny thing. Um, Not that it's not interesting and varied and diverse in its way, but Susan Power, her big book was um, and is still The Grass Dancer. She's from Chicago, yeah? Exactly. And her mother, you know, um, was a huge figure in Native American um, politics in Chicago. And Susan's from here and she comes here once in a while. And uh, so a lot of her book, actually, if I remember correctly, it takes place in Chicago. So I just want to mention real quick, for, for readers that are interested in, in Native literature, there's a, there's a great bookstore. I, had a, I was lucky to get there in Minneapolis called Birchbark Books. Um, I think Louise Erdrich is part owner in it. But you can go online there um, and, and check out um, the Native lit scene. Yeah, and that's where Susan lives now. And so we, she oh, took okay. me there, and all the Erdrich's own that bookstore and I actually read with my friend Linda Grover who's another um, The Dance Boots is one of her books and she's another just phenomenal short story writer she's won all these awards because she's just just great Size Matters won't be heard this week but Lumpin' Radio presents the Undertown Unincorporated Community Calendar. So strap on in and feast your air meat on this. Matings. 
overlord Todd Slabino will be talking at everyone about the sanctions Bridgeport has imposed upon Undertown tomorrow night whenever he feels like it at Town Hall. Updates. Concerns about personal privacy have been answered. Tomorrow, every resident of Undertown will be given tops and blankets to divide their stuff with so don't nobody see what they got. The beautification project of Morgan Street has been concluded. Anyone living below Morgan Street is free to go back into their dwelling. Educa education. Classes on loitering above will begin September 4th. Notes. The gunk grown in the corner is not mold. It contains properties not from this planet. Frank DiGiacomo is tired of people staring at the distracting white pussy substance that forms in the corner of his mouth when he talks. He asks everyone to please stop making him feel bad, so don't stare at it no more. Seriously, just don't look at it. That concludes today's Undertown Unincorporated Community Calendar. The Undertown Unincorporated Community Calendar is presented by Lumpin' Radio and is generously underwritten by the mysterious Colby Turner. This week on the Trump Diaries, a hurricane devastates Houston. The UN warns the USA on its extreme racism. Trump pardons a man held in criminal contempt. And Kellyanne says Trump is serious about shutting down the government over his wall. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 217, August 24th. CNN reports that Trump's current deputy chief of staff received an email in June 2016 from a person attempting to set up a meeting with Vladimir Putin. The email occurred around the same time that Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort met with the Russian lawyer at Trump Tower. Rick Dearborn was Jeff Sessions' chief of staff at the time. And the private investigator behind the infamous Trump dossier was grilled behind closed doors for 10 hours by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Glenn Simpson, who co-founded the private research firm Fusion GPS, answered questions about the 35-page document. Fusion GPS hired a former British intelligence officer, Christopher Steele, to compile that dossier, which alleges that Trump had a long-running relationship with Russia and that the Kremlin holds compromising material on him. Fusion GPS was expected to say they stood by the work and furthermore were proud of it. And the former National Intelligence Director James Clapper called Trump's speech in Phoenix downright scary and disturbing. He also questioned Trump's fitness for office. Clapper is worried about Trump's access to nuclear codes. Maybe he is looking for a way out. Then Trump tweeted, I love the great state of Arizona. Not a fan of Jeff Flake, weak on crime and border. Flake is one of two Republican senators up for re-election next year and has been among a handful of GOP lawmakers who did not endorse Trump for president. And the U.N. issued an early warning to the U.S. over its alarming racism, urging the Trump administration to unequivocally and unconditionally reject discrimination. The only other countries ever to be issued an early warning were Burundi, Iraq, Cote d'Ivoire, Kyrgyzstan, and Nigeria. 
and the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal criticized his staff over their coverage of Trump's rally in Phoenix, describing the reporting as overly opinionated. The journal is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who speaks regularly with Trump and recently dined with the president at the White House. And Trump is reportedly serious about shutting down the government if he doesn't get funding for his border wall. Kellyanne Conway told NBC Trump was steadfastly committed to building the wall and that he expects the funding to do it. Anybody who's surprised by that has not been paying attention for over two years, Conway said. And web hosting company DreamHost was ordered to turn over information about an anti-Trump website to the Department of Justice despite arguments that doing so would impinge on users' First Amendment rights. The judge ruled that DreamHost was obligated to turn over subscriber data as long as it was limited to individuals linked to the Inauguration Day riots and not merely people using the site. The DOJ originally requested that 1.3 million IP addresses from disrupttj20.org be turned over. DreamHost is appealing. Day 218, August 25th. Trump today pardoned former Sheriff Joe Arapaio, who's convicted of criminal contempt related to his refusal to stop imprisoning suspected illegal immigrants. Trump didn't follow his predecessor's practice of consulting the Justice Department for announcing his first pardon. Arapaio was an early Trump supporter who helped fuel unfounded allegations that Obama was not born in the United States. In a tweet, Trump called Arapaio a patriot and said he, quote, kept Arizona safe. Months ago, Trump asked Jeff Sessions and White House counsel if Arapaio's case could be dropped altogether. Trump was advised that would be inappropriate and the case and the charges could not be dropped. Trump also announced that in the middle of the Texas hurricane, believing falsely that TV ratings would be higher. And Trump's top economic advisor, Gary Cohn, said the White House, quote, must do better in consistently and unequivocally condemning hate groups. Cohn, a prominent Jewish member of Trump's administration, drafted a letter of resignation after Trump defended the Nazi protesters in Charlottesville. Trump is said to be privately furious with Cohn, who in turn apparently has told Trump he doesn't care. Cohn's remarks were in contrast to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who said that under no circumstances was he planning to resign after Trump's remarks that, quote, both sides were to blame for the violence. Mnuchin is also Jewish. Seven members of Trump's Infrastructure Council resigned this week, citing his Charlottesville response and other issues. The National Infrastructure Advisory Council was made up of appointees from the private sector, academia, and government to advise the president on security for critical infrastructure. In an unusual move, CIA Director Mike Pompeo was required that the unit investigating possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign report directly to him. Pompeo has repeatedly played down Russian interference in the 2016 election. Officials in the CIA counterintelligence unit say they have to watch Pompeo over fear he might report new information directly to Trump. The worry among some at the agency is, quote, that if you were passing on something too dicey to Pompeo, he would go to the White House with it. And John Kelly and White House staff secretaries will now review all documents that cross Trump's desk. The new system is designed to ensure that Trump won't see any external policy documents that haven't been vetted. For months, people wandered into the Oval Office throughout the day, giving Trump pieces of unvetted information. And policy decisions were often based on whoever gotten Trump's attention last. And Trump gave the Defense Department formal authority to expel transgender from the people in an upcoming order. The order would bar the Pentagon from recruiting transgender troops and cutting off payment for sexual reassignment surgery and other medical treatments for those already serving. Day 219, August 26th. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke recommended that Trump alter at least three national monuments established by his immediate predecessors, including two in Utah. That move is expected to reshape federal land and water protections and is certain also to trigger major legal fights. It is unclear if Trump actually has the authority to alter the monuments. Zinke has recommended reducing the sign of Utah's Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments, as well as Oregon's Cascade Siskiyou National Monument. And Trump announced Arapaio's pardon as Hurricane Harvey made landfall 
because he, quote, assumed the ratings would be far higher. Trump told reporters at a press conference, quote, in the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assumed the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting. Paul Ryan, John McCain, and Jeff Flake have all criticized Trump for pardoning Arapaio. A Ryan spokesman said in a statement, the speaker does not agree with this decision. Law enforcement officials have a special responsibility to respect the rights of everyone in the United States. We should not allow anyone to believe that responsibility is diminished by this pardon. Day 220, August 27th. A Republican lawmakers put forth an amendment that would stop funding for the special counsel's Russia investigation 180 days after it becomes law. The amendment from Representative Ron DeSantis of Florida would also prevent special counsel Robert Mueller from probing matters occurring before June 2015, which is the month Trump announced his presidential bid. The amendment was submitted as part of the upcoming spending package the lower chamber is expected to look at after the congressional recess. And in a damning comment, Rex Tillerson that Trump speaks for himself when asked about the president's values and response to the violence in Charlottesville. I don't believe anyone doubts the American people's values, the commitment of the government or the government's agencies to advancing those values and defending those values, Tillerson said on Fox News Sunday, adding, quote, the president, however, speaks for himself. And Sebastian Gorka left the White House and will return to Breitbart News, reuniting with Steve Bannon. One White House official said Gorka submitted his resignation to John Kelly, while another official said Gorka did not resign, but I can confirm he's no longer with the White House. The White House later issued an unattributed statement saying that Gorka no longer works in the administration, but also did not say he resigned. Day 221, August 28th. The Washington Post revealed that Trump's company was pursuing a plan to develop a Trump Tower in Moscow while he was running for president. Discussions about the Moscow project ran in September 2015 until it was abandoned just before the presidential primaries began in January 2016. The Trump Organization has turned over emails to the House Intelligence Committee pointing to the likelihood of additional contacts between Russia and Trump associates during the campaign. The New York Times disclosed the contents of these emails, saying, quote, a Felix Sater, a Russian immigrant, wrote to Trump's lawyer Michael Cohen in 2015, quote, I will get Putin on this program and we will get Donald elected. Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage the process. At the time, Sater was broker for the Trump organization and was paid to deliver real estate deals. Trump's attorney sent an email to Putin's personal spokesman to ask for help advancing the stall project. Michael Cohen sent the email in January 2016 to Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin's top press aide, at the recommendation of Sater. I respectfully request someone, preferably you, contact me so that I might discuss the specifics, Cohen wrote. I thank you in advance for your assistance. This email marks the most direct documented interaction of a top Trump aide and a senior member of Putin's government. Also, four months into the presidential campaign, Trump signed a letter of intent to pursue building a Trump Tower in Moscow. Then-candidate Trump, in a proposed Russian development deal, contradicts his repeated claims that his business had, quote, no relationship to Russia whatsoever. The Trump Organization signed a non-binding letter of intent in October 2015. And Sebastian Gorka denied he was forced out of the White House, but also claimed many of Trump's advisors, quote, don't want to make America great and again. Gorka singled out Cohen and Munch for particular disdain, saying they were well to the left of the president's base. And Trump rescinded Obama's restrictions in the transfer of surplus military-style equipment to local police departments. Obama's 2015 order came in the wake of the Ferguson riots. The Justice Department concluded that the use of military-style equipment made matters worse in Ferguson. 
Day 222, August 29th. Robert Mueller is investigating whether Trump tried to conceal the purpose of Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer. Prosecutors want to know what Trump's role was in crafting Trump Jr.'s response to reports about the meeting. The White House initially said Trump only weighed in on Trump Jr.'s statement about the Russian meeting. It was later reported that Trump personally dictated Trump Jr.'s statement. Trump Jr. is now to testify before the Senate committee investigating the matter. And Trump warned North Korea that all options are on the table after it fired a missile over Japan. The recent ballistic missile test signaled its contempt for the international community, Trump said in a statement. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley added that, quote, something serious has to happen. Day 223, August 30th. Trump praised the crowd size while touring Corpus Christi in the aftermath of Tropical Storm Harvey. What a crowd, what a turnout, Trump said to several hundred people surrounding a fire station where he spoke from a ladder between fire trucks, seeming to forget where he was. Trump also grabbed a flag and waved it. And Bloomberg reports that Trump fired the organizer for his Phoenix speech because he was upset about the crowd size and TV coverage. After his speech, Trump had his top security aide inform longtime aide George Shijikos that he'd never manage a Trump rally again. Shijikos had organized all of Trump's main campaigns campaign events and occasional rallies since entering office and is one of the longest serving aides to the president. And in a post on Twitter, Trump accused past administrations of paying extortion money to North Korea and said diplomacy is not sufficient. The U.S. has been talking to North Korea and paying them extortion money for 25 years. Talking is not the answer. It is unclear what money Trump is referring to. Trump has been both open to and against talks with North Korea. And Defense Secretary Jim Mattis kicked Trump's proposed ban on transgender people serving in the military down the road, saying that transgender service members will continue to be allowed to serve pending the results of a study. Mattis said he was establishing a panel of experts and no timeline. Mattis and the DOD are said not to wish to exclude transgender service people and furthermore, fear a wave of lawsuits should they do so. And a new poll says only 16% of people in America approve of the way Trump conducts himself as president. These are the Trump Diaries. spoke to three students from the Brighton Park Neighborhood Association about cuts at their school and how aldermen have reacted to their protests. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. We're hitting left this morning. Uh, Klonsky Brothers are not all here, but we got a substitute Klonsky brother, uh, Brandon Johnson, the uh, political organizer, uh, activist for the Chicago Teachers Union, and a uh, 
up-and-coming radio star in his own right uh, with uh, at least two programs I know of, right, Brandon? That's right. WCPT, Saturdays, 7 to 8 a.m., and, and WVON, Saturdays, 11 a.m. to noon. And, you're, and now, now you're pinch-hitting for my brother and doing a, a great job. It's going to be tough for Fred to break back into the starting Wait, line. Fred's, Fred's coming back? Well, he thinks he is. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I don't know. This guy's doing pretty well up hey man, here. Once you call me up from the minor leagues, man, I'm 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 not giving it up. Yeah, don't. Okay, could you stay right here? I'm I'm, I'm here, Fred. Fred, Fred Jamie Trekker seems to be uh, uh, pushing for Brandon Johnson. You better get back here. Martha's Vineyard. Did, yeah, I think <laughs> I think Fred quit this week. Fred quit this week. Or else, or else. Uh, well, Jamie, you've been quitting every week, and you're still here. <laughs> That's what I said. Fred quit this week. <laughs> All right, uh, we've we've been talking to we've been talking to uh, Wendy Catton from Raise Your Hand, the parent, uh, parents activist group, and um, Cassie Caswell from another parent activist group. I'm going to ask you later, guys. Uh, why why do we have two uh, parent activist groups? Why don't you have one? But anyway, I won't get into that now. It seems like you're you guys are pretty close, but uh, maybe you can explain that to us later on. In the meantime, we have we have three uh, young students here. Well, young student. We have three students here. Everybody looks young to me at my age. <laughs> Even Brandon looks like a young young dude. I am like nineteen in Klonsky years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know that that makes me like twenty five in Klonsky years. Leslie, uh, we're gonna we'll start with you. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, tell us who you are. Uh, you, you you go to school where and and uh, a little bit about what you've been up to uh, with with. Uh, with your activism? Well, my name is Leslie Vences. I um, go to Kelly High School, and we've been doing a lot of, um, I guess, work around education, violence, and um, funds for schools. We recently went to city, city Council, and we interrupted it. It was a lot of students to show Mayor... Um, that was rude of you. You interrupted the city council? <laughs> I mean, they interrupt my education all the time. So oh, I, all right. Well, that's a good yes. reason. Payback is uh, what? Well, I, I can't say you that. You can't say okay. that. Okay, go ahead. Um, it was a lot of students. It was like about 40. And it was to show Rom that what they're doing, giving TIF money to Navy Pier, $50 million to be exact, um, wow. is really hurting our schools and not helping our education so they're taking 50 million dollars and giving it to the operators of navy pier and also i think uh, even more than that building uh, this new uh, basketball arena for uh depaul basketball team uh am i right about that yeah so so you've been going to the city council meetings what else we went to um governor ronner's house <laughs> <laughs> It's a name I like to forget myself, I understand, yeah. Um, you went to his house? Yeah. Wow, you guys are audacious. To um, protest about the SB1 he didn't want to sign, and to, sh to talk to his neighbors too, to support us, to show them what it's like to live on the South Side. What do his neighbors uh, think about uh, the governor? Some were okay with it, some of them were really not interested. Uh, I feel like they're his allies too. So it's good you're asking though. Why don't you move the mic over and uh, so so your your colleague here can introduce herself. <laughs> Tell us your name and where you go to school. Um, my name is Mackenzie Rieger. I go to John Hancock High School on the southwest side of Chicago. 
That's and a good compromise. South, we got South Side and West Side, but you're on the Southwest Side. Yeah. All right. And this summer, like Leslie said, we did a lot of work in the community based on education, violence, and immigration. immigration. So mainly with education, like Leslie said, we went to city council and we, we got in different groups and we spread out around the room. And one by one, each group would get up and like chant things at the alderman and the mayor. And we got kicked out one by one. Oh. That was really fun. What was the response besides getting kicked out? Did any alderman follow up with you all to talk to you about what your demands um, on social media, we got a lot of like recognition, but no alderman like reached reached out to us. So students like, in the neighborhood showed up to participate and to activate um, a city that should be responsive to your demands, and none of your representatives at the city council level took any time to sit down with any of you. No, but the uh, the day before the city council meeting, we had a public meeting at a local elementary school and we invited a couple aldermen and state representatives to come out and they came and we asked them questions. Who came? Alderman Lopez, Alderman Cardenas, um, Teresa Mock, a state representative, Uh and uh, Tavares, Mm. Uh she came. And we asked them questions about, will they support like certain immigration bills and stuff? And I think Alderman Lopez was one who was not really like he was not going to support it. And he made it very clear that he wouldn't. He wouldn't support the something about immigration. I forgot. Yeah. OK. All right. So Alderman Lopez, just, you know, because we have another um, student here and you introduce yourself. When you introduce yourself, what school you go to, people should know that Alderman Lopez is the alderman, I believe, of the 15th Ward. Yes which represents uh, Inglewood and neighborhoods back of the yards, I think, too. But Back Inglewood. of the yards, yes. Right. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead, young lady. Um, hello, my name is Julie Verenaya. And Brighton Park, I think. I go to yeah. Kelly High School. And, yeah, we did a public meeting, and we asked um, the aldermen or the representatives that were there if they supported the Welcoming City Ordinance. And the one who said no, and still up to this day, he's still not afford, that bill is Alderman Lopez. Um, he's really against all of our beliefs and like all of that, and he's he just doesn't want to come out and support us. So yeah. Mm. Uh, t- how did you get involved? How did you get involved in uh, in your activism? What got you in- interested in this? Um, well, Olivia here. Um, she I went to one of a protest at Kelly when they Wait, had. Who's Olivia? Um, (laughs) One of the organizers who obviously did not feed them this morning. (laughs) We'll talk about me being a mandated reporter of Illinois. We'll get to that later, too, Klonsky. We'll get to the donut issue. Yeah, so go ahead. You were saying, so Olivia got you. uh, Yeah, um, we did a a protest for when they were going to build a Nova school half a mile away from my school. So I went out there and we did a, a walkout because we didn't want that school to be built. Because um, Kelly is losing a lot of money, and that money that we're losing, the Nova School is gaining. So instead of, like, making another Nova School, they should, like, improve my school. Like, that's not quite fair for those who are still at Kelly.
Contra Tiempo Radio spoke with Mare Avertencia Larica, a female rapper from Oaxaca, Mexico, that fights for women and indigenous people's rights through her poetry and lyrics. Contra Tiempo airs every Sunday from 9 to 10 a.m. Buenos días, estamos en Contratiempo Radio y tenemos como invitada el día de hoy a Mare Advertencia Lírica, una rapera zapoteca, feminista, cantante, una mujer nacida en Oaxaca. Buenos días, Mare. Buenos días a toda la gente que escucha y bueno, gracias por el espacio aquí en la radio. No, estamos por aquí. Perfecto. Y Mare, este, cuando mencionas algo diferente, te refieres a a la lírica con la poesía, a exponer ciertos temas que son un poco delicados, porque toda tu poesía y toda tu lírica tiene esos aspectos, ¿correcto? Sí, bueno, yo, lo, yo lo nombro siempre como que son temas incómodos, Ajá. son como justo las cosas que no son tan fáciles de hablar, pero en general, o sea, como para mí el ejercicio ha sido ese, ¿no? Como que sí la música y sí el, el rap, eh, la forma en la que escribo, tiene que ver totalmente con incitar a la audiencia, que le provoque algo. Y puede ser que sí, como sea a favor de lo que yo estoy diciendo o que sea en contra. Pero justo creo que si no se da este diálogo, no vamos a poder como ni siquiera saber de qué lado estamos, ¿no? De repente justo hay una, hay una frase que dice, lo que no se nombra no existe. Uh -huh. Entonces para mí es necesario empezar a nombrar justo como para saber de entrada dónde estamos, ubicarnos. Y sobre eso pues ya veremos qué sale, ¿no? Pero de entrada creo que hay muchas cosas dentro de nuestra historia que no estamos hablando. Y con eso creo que también, o sea... Tanto es eh, en un ejercicio personal, o sea, lo que nosotros, nosotras tenemos como ahí atorado, pero en general también como colectivo, como sociedad, como dentro de la comunidad que estamos, hay muchas historias, mucho de nuestra memoria histórica que hemos perdido. Entonces también un poco es a partir de la palabra empezar a ejercitar, reconocer, empezar a ejercitar eh, el analizar y bueno, y rescatar, recuperar toda esa historia. ¿De dónde viene esa voz rebelde con la que...? plasmas todas tus canciones? Bueno, yo de entrada eh, soy de una comunidad indígena en Oaxaca, mi familia es migrante, y creo que de todas esa, esas experiencias... ¿Cómo, ¿Cómo se llama la comunidad? La comunidad se llama La Tubi, está ubicada en la Sierra Norte de Oaxaca. Uh -huh. eh, lo más cercano, digamos, si ven el mapa, es Guelatao, es como lo más, eh, digamos, visible dentro de ese lado de, de la Sierra Norte. Y, bueno, es una comunidad muy pequeña en realidad, una comunidad empobrecida, que lamentablemente, pues, así como mi comunidad, hay un montón de comunidades alrededor y en otras partes del sur y en general, como en el mundo, pues, de estas comunidades que sufren desplazamiento económico a las ciudades, que sufren, eh, pues, toda discriminación, que además también por muchas veces tener una primer lengua que no es el español o la lengua oficial, pues, también tienen una marginación lingüística. Entonces, digamos, como en todas estas intersecciones de identidades, es donde a mí me toca crecer. E incluso, ¿no? También Oaxaca tiene una característica, pues, de tener mucha efervescencia social, o sea, de que todo el tiempo está pasando cosas, de que todo el tiempo hay gente que está organizando, que está eh, buscando sobrellevar la realidad, pero que también está organizando, está moviendo, está movilizándose. Entonces, tenemos la fama de, de ser gente como, como grillera, que no nos gusta hacer ruido. O justo como de esta, justo también de incomodar, ¿no? De repente hacia el Estado, hacia la Federación. Entonces, pues en este contexto es donde yo empecé a hacer rap, donde empecé a darme cuenta que el arte también es parte como de todas estas luchas, ¿no? Donde no solo se trata de una cuestión como eh, de entretenimiento 
o como solo de, de una cuestión bella de la, del mismo arte o incluso hasta elitista del arte, sino se trata como el arte también puede ser una herramienta de, dentro de la historia, ¿no? Como, y en realidad lo vemos, o sea, mucho de la canción latinoamericana, eh, de la nueva canción latinoamericana de los años 70, pues es, un, es el mismo manifiesto de todas las comunidades que vivían en Chile, en Argentina, eh, toda esta, esta efervescencia social y que al final de cuentas ahora, escuchando a Víctor Jara, escuchando a Mercedes Sosa, podemos saber cuál era el sentimiento también que estaba viviendo la comunidad en esa época histórica, ¿no? Entonces creo que para mí un poco la música ese va en ese mismo ejercicio. Así que la mula no era arisca, pero la hicieron. La niña no era feminista, pero aquí nos vemos. Compas creemos, machitos no sabemos. <risa> <risa> Mare, este, compas creemos, machitos no sabemos. Si quieres regresamos a eso. Cada lírica ha tenido su momento. O sea, no puedo decir que yo hubiera podido hacer mejor la canción de presos políticos ahora, porque en el momento que lo hice era un momento que necesitaba yo hacerlo, ¿no? Y que necesitaba hablar de eso. Y que era un momento que estaba viviendo México que me inspiraba a hablar de eso, ¿no? Entonces yo creo que si lo, si lo volviera a grabar ahora, no sería diferente. Y a lo mejor no tendría como, le, como la misma motivación porque en ese momento tenía un porqué. O sea, para mí era necesario plantear ese tema y decirlo así. Después eso está pasando. Y que lamentablemente yo digo, ¿no? Yo tengo esta canción que se llama Hasta que el último, hasta que la última salga. Y la grabé en 2011, si no estoy mal. No, no es cierto, en 2009, por eso salió en 2010. Pero esta canción, por ejemplo, yo cuando la canto todavía en la actualidad, de repente es así de, es bien triste que esta canción la escribí hace años y sigue totalmente vigente ahora. O sea, con toda la cuestión de la criminalización, de la persecución política y de tantos presos y presas políticas que existen en el mundo, como la canción sigue vigente, pero para mí es triste, como eso, ¿no? Pero claro. justo también es necesaria, precisamente por eso. Entonces, creo que en la parte de, de la lírica, puedo decir que si a lo mejor la técnica cambia, va, te vas inspirando de otras cosas, vas conociendo, vas creciendo, pero cada lírica tiene un momento del por qué ser. Entonces, también, por ejemplo, yo no hubiera podido hablar como de feminismo en el disco de qué mujer, porque no estaba yo en mi misma construcción, todavía no lograba ensamblar todo o, o analizar todo, ¿no? Ahora ya puedo yo hacerlo a partir como de entender un montón de cosas y de convivir con un montón de cosas, a partir también de cómo la criminalización hacia los cuerpos femeninos se ha dado en México con todas las leyes pro vida. Entonces, eso no, no hubiera podido ser antes, sino tuvo que llegar este momento para que yo pudiera hablar de eso. Es decir, ¿se requiere un cierto tipo de trabajo de investigación para poder hablar con cierta autoridad? Pues no creo que no creo ni siquiera como que cuando tú hagas un ejercicio creativo tenga que ser como con una autoridad. Uh -huh. O sea, de entrada es un, es un ejercicio personal y reflexivo y puede que te equivoques. Y okay. en realidad puede que no tenga como, como una fundamentación. No es una tesis, uh -huh. pero es como justo nada más poner... Eh, sí, más bien creo que es una tiene que ver con un tema de sensibilización. De que para mí, como justo hablar de feminicidios no me intersectaría si a lo mejor no tengo todas estas compañeras por las que siento miedo, ¿no? Claro. Si a lo mejor no hubiera estado justo en Ciudad Juárez y hubiera visto la dinámica directamente ahí. O sea, y, y, y eso como es tiene que ver con un sentido de empatía, con un sentido de conciencia, de cómo te vas dando cuenta y descubriendo de que existen todas estas cosas de las que a mí me gusta hablar, ¿no? De las que siento que se necesita hablar. Pero que en otros momentos a lo mejor no hubiera podido hacerlo porque no tenía ni siquiera yo misma la propia sensibilización. Entonces, ahora puedo hacerlo porque ya me intersecta, porque ya lo entendí, porque, ah, sí, eso se necesita hablar, ¿no? 
Entonces, creo que más bien tiene que ver con eso. No es como, no me siento en ninguna autoridad, uh -huh. pero sí siento que para mí el hablar de estos temas tiene que ver con una, un, con una necesidad también de catarsis. Claro. De que no, no me gusta lo que está pasando, de que no me siento cómoda con todo esto. Entonces, mi, mi, mi ejercicio es sacarlo. Así lo saco en las letras e incluso, ¿no? Siempre Viva también es un, es un disco que para mí yo considero muy personal porque es la primera canción que yo hablo como justo de mi familia. Hay una canción que yo le dedico a mi hermano que falleció hace cuatro años y para mí es como una canción súper difícil que básicamente nunca canto en, en vivo porque me cuesta mucho trabajo y tiene que ver con un proceso de duelo. Uh -huh. Pero justo eso, ¿no? O sea, yo tuve que vivir un duelo y tuve que cerrar un ciclo y hacer como todo un proceso para después yo poder decir sí, esta canción le estoy ofrendando a él. Pero en otro momento de mi vida, pues yo no hubiera pensado ni siquiera en escribir algo tan personal. Claro. Entonces, como, como cada letra tiene su momento y su contexto. Perfecto. ¿El taller dónde lo vas a, dónde lo vas a presentar? ¿Y de qué trata? Si nos puedes dar un poquito más o menos el, el tema general del taller. Bueno, de, se trata justo un poco como de pensar la poesía. Bueno, eh, no solo como una enseñanza o como una, un conocimiento académico, sino como justo que desde las pequeñas cosas podemos inspirarnos para crear. Entonces, más bien, yo siempre digo, no, no se trata como de que de este taller o de los talleres que imparto salgan siendo poetas, sino se trata de atreverse a hacer algo diferente, algo que quizá no habían considerado dentro de su imaginario. Y pues eso es, ¿no? Como construir el lenguaje, utilizarlo para nosotras, para nosotros, para contar nuestras historias. Y pues a partir de eso también recuperar nuestro espacio, nuestra memoria, como ocupar el mundo también a partir de la palabra. Hay colores, cosas hermosas, artistas urbanos, cambiando las sombras, dibujando poesía en mi ciudad. Hay un movimiento vivo, verás mi realidad. Las paredes han callado, solo quieren explotar. Han tomado vida propia, ven acércate a escuchar. Y si entes extraños te aterraban, ahora puedes disfrutar. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.